Does anyone know what tonight is? Oh, 85 people. Awesome. <laughs> Let's try it one more time. Does anyone know what tonight is? Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that. Prayer Summit. Tonight is Prayer Summit. It's our first Prayer Summit. Oh, by the way, youth, have a great class. Love seeing so many of you streaming out to, to be with Pastor Dave and, uh, and the team there. You're going to learn a lot this morning. Prayer summits are really important here at Hillcrest. Um, our plan for this next 12-month cycle is to have seven of them, three of them before Christmas, four of them after Christmas. So this is our first one of the year, though, our very first prayer summit of the year. Um, and for us, prayer summits is, is, is a, a really important way. I mean, it's, there's so many things that prayer summit is. I don't have time to talk about it all, but let me just start, at this, start with this one thing. Why do we do prayer summits? Well, one reason, just one of many. One of the very first things that goes by the wayside when a church starts to decline is prayer. One of the very first things that goes by the wayside when a church starts to decline is prayer. And the reason for that is very simple. It's hard to pray. And the reason for that is found in the Bible. Because we're in a spiritual war. And the weapons that we have to fight the enemy, much of them are accessed through prayer. So the enemy would like nothing more, forces of darkness would like nothing more to see an unarmed church, a weakened church, a church that has nothing in their hand to swing, a church that won't swing, a church that lies down and gives up. And so doing it once a month, and again, we just only do it seven times a year, but it, sort of on a monthly cycle, we'll do one first week of October, first week of November, and first week of December, the next three. We do this prayer summit where we come together and we, we reinforce, and we know prayers happening in the church. We know people pray at home. We know people pray in, in small groups, uh, and there's lots of small groups this year. And we know people pray in prayer meetings, men's prayer meetings, women's prayer meetings, midweek prayer meetings, prayer meetings I haven't heard of, prayer meetings in schools, uh, I was talking to Pastor Dave, our youth pastor. He said he thinks he knows of four schools where prayer meetings have popped up this year. Prayer meetings or Bible studies. Exciting stuff. I haven't seen that on the radar for a few years, so I'm really excited about all this stuff. So we know prayer is happening, but there's something about when the church comes together to pray. And we, we make it as, as accessible as possible because what we, we realize that if all of hell is pushing back against you and me praying then we better bring something to the, to the fight. And, the, you know, the secret sauce for us is the church, right? It's an incredible thing where two or three are gathered together. He is there with us, right? We're not just there on our own with our own willpower. The Spirit of God is there. Jesus is there. And when we gather together, there's incredible strength. There's incredible strength. So we try to provide an environment where our prayer times are guided. That really helps. Because, you know, it's, I know people have gone to our prayer summits and they prayed for like that whole time and they're like, they've never prayed anywhere near that before. They've never prayed, you know, they, they you know, get praying three minutes and you don't know what else to say. It's guided, it's directed so that it's, it's really helpful to help people just to walk through these different areas of prayer. And the neat thing about it is as we practice those things corporately, they also become accessible to us individually, right? So you practice confession at the prayer summit, 
that becomes a habit in your own life. You practice personal ministry at a prayer life, at a prayer summit, that becomes something you can, you can learn those tools and those abilities to be able to pray with other people. Uh, you, you practice praise and thanksgiving, that becomes more of a habit of gratitude in your life towards God. So we're just developing those things and reinforcing those things. So as a church, we're not uh, being blown back by the enemy, but we're blowing the enemy back. So that's what we believe in. That's why we do prayer summits. And tonight, maybe some of you saw my, if you get my pastor's heart email, you can sign up for that if you want. But I do send out an email every now and again, every week, every two weeks, whatever. And uh, um, you know that we have pie tonight. <laughs> Homemade pie. So uh, pretty pumped about that. So anyhow. So if you like peach pie or... Uh, apple pie or strawberry rhubarb pie or uh, pumpkin pie. Those are all homemade pies that will be available tonight after the prayer summit. So. Six o'clock tonight. If you haven't come, I really encourage you to come once, see what it's all about, and, uh, and I, I believe you won't be disappointed with spending that time with others, seeking the Lord. Um, one of the things we do do at the prayer summit, last thing I'll say and then I'll move right into my message, is that that's often the place where we reveal a lot of stuff that God's been doing behind the scenes. This morning we had uh, Jared and Suzanne and Bree up here to share a little praise report. There's so many good things that are happening. We, a lot of times we just save it for the prayer summit. And I say, yeah, when we get to the prayer summit, that's when we'll do the big reveal of all the cool things that God's been doing. And God's been doing a lot of cool things. And uh, so I usually say those things for a prayer summit. So if you just want to say, I just want to be on the inside track of what's going on, come to the prayer summit. Uh, that's where we're, f- we're fighting for God to change things, and that's where we report so we can praise God that he has changed things. So, cool. What about childcare? <laughs> what about childcare? Um, that's not an issue for you yet, but uh, you're just asking for other people. Because <laughs> if it was, I'd be really celebrating that. <laughs> Your wife would be celebrating more. Um, what about childcare? We do have childcare. Yes, we do have childcare. Where's a staff member who can back me up here real quick? Yes, Tammy. Tammy, we have childcare for what age span? Do you have that? We have childcare from, uh, there's nursery running for two-year-olds and under, uh, from three-year-olds uh, up to, I think, grade five. We also have children's prayer summits. Yes. So we have better than child care. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. Thank you, Tammy. Yes. All right. Good question, though. Thank you for asking. I know for most parents, uh, you know, we're, we have little ones, too. So we know what that, like, that challenge is like. So there, that has already been answered. All right. We've been going through the book of Acts. This is week number three. There's 26 chapters in the book, and we're on chapter three. So a miracle will have to happen in the next three weeks. And so you don't want to miss it. Come the next three weeks to see how the miracle unfolds and how we get through the book of Acts. But um, anyhow, today um, I want to just, let me quickly read something before I start because I'm going to be talking about something that intersects with this. And I was just reading some historians um, recently who were just talking about how the early church grew. And uh, this is an excerpt from one historian I was reading about the growth of Christianity. It says, Famine and war 
had recently afflicted Caesarea. This is one of the big cities in the Roman Empire. Famine and war had recently afflicted Caesarea, so when the plague hit in the early 4th century, the population was already weakened and unable to withstand the additional blow. The population began fleeing the city, one of the larger ones of the Roman Empire, for safety in the countryside. However, in the midst of the fleeing inhabitants, at least one group was staying behind, the Christians. The bishop of the city and historian of the early church, Eusebius, records that during the plague, this is his quote, all day long some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Cities in the ancient world were even more overcrowded than the densest population centers today. With few sewers existing, cities were filthy beyond imagining and became a breeding ground for disease. Major catastrophes were not uncommon, including fires, plagues, conquests by armies, and frequent earthquakes. Even though the cities were unpleasant places to live, they were the population and intellectual centers of the empire, and they provided Christians with opportunities for numerical growth and cultural influence. Indeed, Christianity eventually dominated the empire by taking root in almost all the major cities of the ancient Mediterranean world, from Alexandria in North Africa to Cordova in Spain. However, the Christian conquest of the Roman Empire came not by the sword, but by the preaching of the gospel joined with acts of compassion. Eusebius goes on to state that because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. A few decades after Eusebius, the last pagan emperor, Julian, recognized that the Christian practice of compassion was one cause behind the transformation of the faith from a small movement on the edge of the empire to cultural ascendancy. Writing to a pagan priest, he said, this is the emperor writing, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think that the Galileans, that's his terminology for the Christians, observed this fact, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. To another, he wrote, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. In fact, Julian, he was sort of concerned about people being won over to Christian faith. Uh, he said, Julian proposed that pagan priests imitate the Christians' charity in order to bring about a revival of paganism in the empire. Julian's program failed because the polytheism of ancient Rome was unable to sustain the kind of self-sacrificial love and compassion that Eusebius observed in Caesarea. Christianity presented to the ancient world two theological truths that were not to be found in the pagan religions. The first is that the God of Jesus Christ is a God worth dying for, since he had first demonstrated his love for humanity by sending his son. The second truth was a new, con a new conception of humanity, that is, the idea that all human beings have special dignity and should therefore be shown compassion. These two ideas slowly but surely transformed the culture of the Roman Empire. Now this is 
the historian's commentary. I'll just read it. I think it's an interesting summary. But he says, Today, as the West appears to be returning to paganism, the distinctiveness of the Christian doctrines of God and man will once more stand in, uh, will stand in um, contrast. Yeah, oh, sorry, will once more stand in stark contrast to the surrounding culture by Christians demonstrating the love of Christ and acts of compassion. So how did, how did the, um, the empire get changed? It was through their message, but it was through who they had become. It was through who they were. And when people tried to imitate who they were, they found they couldn't imitate who they were because it wasn't in them. Let me just read to you now Acts 2, 42 to 30. I, I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture here this morning. I'm going to try to move through it fairly quickly because I've got lots to share, but I'm going to, I want to share this. I really want to talk about being his witnesses, right? Remember Acts 1, 8? We said Acts 1, 8 is the verse that sort of describes all of Acts, Right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. It's this, you will be my witnesses that I want to talk a little bit about today, and there's so much that could be said about this, but I want to zero in on, on one thing, and that is the way in which the message and the miracle come together to form our witness how the message and the miracle come together to form our witness. Now, I'm going to talk about two miracles. And I want you to see these in the text, two miracles that happened with the early church. The one miracle, we're all familiar with the word, I think, miracle, like it's where something supernatural happens, right? Somebody's really sick, and then they're healed, and it's a miracle, right? Um, so that, that's something that we're familiar with. But I think there's two miracles that happen in the early church. One is the miracle that happens through the believers, right? Again, like praying for someone who's sick and suddenly they get up and they're well. But the other miracle is what happens in the believers, where they're transformed, where their nature is transformed, where they're no longer living for themselves, but they're living for others, and they're living for God so much so that they're willing, like the historical account we read, they're willing to stay in a disease-ridden city out of compassion for their neighbors who've been rejected. You see, the Romans, what they would do when they had diseased and, and, and a sick family was they would escort them out of the house and leave them in the streets because you wanted to get as far away from sick people because the plague spread. So then the Christians would go into the streets and retrieve the discarded family members and uh, sometimes that was a death sentence. The Christians would die and they would contract the same diseases. But in other times, it, it led to uh, health and wholeness. And of course, so once people, some uh, even developed immunity to the disease, and now they were sort of like the perfect caregivers in that environment. So remember, a miracle, we're dividing it two ways. One, what happens through Christians and what happens in Christians, or what happens through and what happens to, okay? So now I want to read to you this first part, and it's at the last part of Acts chapter 2, and this is, this is a miracle we're going to describe, okay? This is what's happened in the believers. They, Acts 2, 42, 
Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Is this because even when Jesus was around, they were really good at this stuff? They did a lot of this stuff with Jesus, but they were notoriously bad at it. Right? Fall asleep praying, uh, disagreements abounding over who should be first, who was most important. Their fellowship was often fractured. Uh, they often got into weird arguments and things at feasts. Breaking of bread didn't always go well for them. Uh, they didn't understand Jesus' teaching a lot of times, pushed back on it a lot of times. So here you find these people submissive to the apostles' teaching. Their fellowship is awesome. They, do real, they just have this incredible harmony when they're breaking bread, and they're really devoted to prayer. Something has happened, actually. A miracle has happened to change who they were. Something has happened to them. But then the next line says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So here's the through miracle. Right, The two, they've been changed, but the through, doing uh, wonders and signs, and, and I assume healing is a part of that. And then it goes on to say, back to the two. All the believers to, were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. Now, when you read this, understand this is not just a list of their habits. Well, this was their habit. But they didn't have these habits before the Holy Spirit came. They didn't have these habits. Even when they were walking with Jesus, they struggled in all of these things. And now they've got the extra challenge. You know, just before Jesus died, they had a big fight over who was going to be first, right? James and John, they even got their mom in the game trying to, you know, pump them up so that they could be first and, and make a special, you know, just, mom, talk to Jesus make, so we can be first, so we can be number one and two or tied for one or whatever, you know, brothers, right? So how do you, after James and John did that fiasco, how do you have humility as a group? Wouldn't there be a little bit of love lost? How about trust after Judas betrayed Jesus? Think that would be easy? You go, man, we thought Judas was on our team, and he betrayed Jesus, and now I look at these other dudes, and, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trusting now. I don't know who's going to stab me in the back. They had incredible trust. They had incredible humility, all the opposite to what they were experiencing before, and I believe it's, it ties directly to two things. One, the resurrection of Jesus was a game changer, and the coming of the Holy Spirit was the other. These two game changers had totally transformed uh, them from the inside out, and they were different people. Let's keep reading. Oh, let you know what? I'm going to just jump off to one other passage about this change on the inside. Philippians 2, 1 to 2 says it this way. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Philippians 2, 1 to 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This is actually a pretty great description of what the disciples were living out, how, what their community had been like, become like. And, uh, but if you read this and then just go away and don't clue into how this happens, you won't be able to reproduce it. 
just like those pagan priests couldn't reproduce what the Christians did. How does it come to be? First, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. How do you get to unity? How do you get to being of one mind? How do you get to love and breaking bread together and, and this awesome, humble, loving, incredible community? How do you get there? Well, it starts from being united with Christ. It starts from being, receiving comfort from his love from common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion being downloaded into your life from God himself. If you got that, if you got that, if you're experiencing that, if you're, if you're in relationship with God, then it's totally feasible to have a command that says, then, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And you say, okay, just share what you got. You're receiving from God Share it. But, like the pagan priests in history that we read about, if you say, just be good like that, just be loving, just be kind, be self-sacrificing to the point of laying down your whole life, and the pagan priests are like, huh? That's not in me. I got into the pagan priest gig because it's got awesome perks for me. I didn't get into it so I could lay down my life, so I could catch a disease. I'm sorry. If my spouse gets a disease, I'm putting them out in the streets just like every other Roman. I'm going to flow with the culture, not against it. Because that's not in me. It's in you because of relationship with Christ. So, don't, so again, sometimes we come to the Bible and we say, oh, give me the list of to-dos. And we neglect to find out how to do those things. And then we are so disappointed because we can't pull them off. It has to come from being united with Christ. And these people were reunited with Christ, and that's why we see this incredible, incredible change in their lives. And I think this is really key, to, and it's just to say that the miracle that God wants to do in you is a miracle of transformation. It's a miracle of change. I used to, when I was a youth pastor, I used to ask two questions. I used to say, how has following Jesus changed your life for the better? That was the first question. And that was hard because some kids had grown up in the church and they sort of didn't know a life without God. So then I would ask this other question, how do you think your life would be different if you weren't following Jesus? Right? If you didn't actually have any unity with, with God. And uh, those questions might help you to sort of think through the change that Jesus is bringing your, bringing your life. Like, like, think about it. Has there been any change with your anger because of Jesus? Maybe there's been some change with your greed because of Jesus? What about envy? Any, any change there? What about lust? Any change in that area because of, of Jesus in your life? Or maybe you'll do the other question. You'll say, how would my life be different if Jesus wanted my life? And you actually know your own sinful, ten, natural sinful proclivities. I naturally do these things, but I know there's a difference because of Jesus in my life because I do that less or I feel convicted about it and I repent or he gives me power to overcome those things. Maybe that's your story, that's your witness to tell. Any change, any more hope in your life? Any more grace to others? Any more compassion? Any more confidence or purpose for your own life? Did he save you from going down a wrong path? Did he free you from addiction? Did he give you a new identity? Did he help you with loneliness, sickness, or fear? Any of those, any one of those, would be a miracle. Would be a miracle. 
Let's keep going. Chapter 3, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. I love this, because before the guy said, hey, you got any money? And Peter, like, gives him eye contact and says, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. So now we're talking about the other miracle, right? We're talking about the miracle in you. This is the miracle through you. This is a miracle through believers, right? Peter and John, the power of God, through the power of God, they did this, right? He, he jumped to his feet, he began to walk, he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, When the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Now, let me just pause for a second. What would people be saying? they say, look at what's happened to this guy through these men. So what's happened to him through them. And Peter is quick to clarify. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now pause for a second. Your witness, your witness in the world, my witness in the world, I said it's made up of miracle and message. Miracle and message. What God has done to you, what God will do through you, but what is the message part? What is the message part? We're just hearing it right now. We're just beginning to hear the message. I actually went through these passages. I highlighted all the miracle stuff, like what God was doing in them and what God was doing through them in green, and then I highlighted in yellow the message, the message, the message, the message. This is the message that they were saying. And these things must be paired together. They, they come together. We'll talk more about that. But let, you're starting to hear the message. This is the message. They have an audience because of the miracle. This is the message. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, had glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. He <laughs> said, wow, this good news gospel sort of starts with some bad news. It does. It does. Now, I want to just give you a, a caveat. This isn't how you have to start every gospel talk. Okay? He's speaking specifically to the actual Jewish people who might have been in the crowd who said, don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. We'll take a murderer. Crucify Jesus. So he's starting at a place where they can recognize. You'll, 
If you read farther into the book of Acts, into Acts 17, you'll read about how Paul does a gospel talk in Athens. He doesn't start with the scriptures because they wouldn't know them. He actually starts with where their culture's at, right? They worship, they have one little altar to an unknown God. And I won't get far into this because this might get covered in the next few weeks. But basically, he sees this altar to a God they don't know and he uses it as a jumping off point to talk about it, right? That you can actually know this God and goes on to say how this is Jesus, right? So he actually starts with their culture, he quotes their poets, and then he brings them to the truth about who God is. So you don't always have to go about this way, but this, these people knew the scriptures, they were Jews, they were fellow Jews, and they knew the events that had happened recently, very recently. We're talking in the last, you know, uh, couple months, basically, these events had happened, okay? So they knew about Jesus' uh, crucifixion, and they would have heard in the streets how they had the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. So he is speaking directly to them, and boy, he's, he's pinning them to the wall. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Now, so I, I, it's interesting, you read through all these witnesses stuff. Again and again, they're talking about being witnesses. There's lots of scriptures that talk about how the baton has been passed down the line. I'm not going to get into all that now. We're witnesses of that today. Not eyewitnesses like they were. Weren't actually there. Uh, but we also are witnesses of what God has done, the message, but also what God has done in us, the miracle. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. This is the miracle. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in, Israel, in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. That means turn around, turn, change your mind, change your behavior, turn towards, away from sin and to God, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So it's incredible. He says, here's the bad news. You're guilty before God. Here's the good news. Uh, even though you did these things, God had a plan. He, for, he fulfilled his plan, what had been prophesied years ago through the prophets. And now your response is to repent, to turn away from sin, and to turn towards God. That might be a little confusing. How do you turn away from sin? This week, actually just a couple days ago, I was out in the backyard and um, engaging with our youngest. And our youngest is still two. He's not quite three. And so I was engaging with him. And he has a word that he loves to use all the time now. He's asserting his independence. He says, self, self. He means myself. I'd like to do it myself. I want to get in the high chair myself. I want to open the gate myself. I want to put on my own shoes, myself. So he's all, he just says, self, self, self. So I say, okay, I'll help, self. And sometimes it's sort of self, and then other times it's like self, you know. <laughs> so the other day he's sort of going self, self, self. <laughs> and I, look, I got down close to him and I said, aren't you the most cute and adorable little bundle of sin ever? <laughs> now, because I smiled, he smiled. But then I looked at my wife, and she wasn't smiling at all. <laughs> so I realized I should not say that anymore. I only said it once. 
The thing is, we think that's so funny in a little kid, but you know, when you grow up, you just become a more sophisticated version of that exact same thing. Right? We're going around, we're not saying it with one word. We're not saying self, 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 self. But we say it in sentences, in paragraphs, with our lifestyles. We say, look at what I have done. Look at what I can do. Look at who I am. Won't anyone recognize what I've achieved and how far I've come and all that I've done? The thing is, that sort of works for a while, and it's, I'm nothing wrong with independence, nothing wrong with taking responsibility. Please do those things. The Bible talks about those things and doing those things. But it's where we get to that. We get to these moments, don't we, where we're going, self, self, self. Wait a second. I can't do this. Sometimes my youngest will say self, like put on his shoes, and then a few seconds later he says help. I'm like, oh, there, that Velcro's a little hard to open, isn't it? Okay, I got to roll again. I'm important. Anyhow. And that's how it is when we're adults. Self, 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 self. Then you encounter something in you that you can't change. Or outside of you, circumstances that you can't change. And suddenly self, self, self doesn't cut it. And we get despondent. Despair settles in. And we try, we redouble our efforts. I'm going to change who I am. I'm going to change this circumstance. I'm going to, I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to circumvent the rules. I'm going to try to do everything. And we find that that thing within ourselves or that thing outside of ourselves is unmovable. And some people at that point discover a new word. Instead of self, 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 they... Jesus. Jesus. Jesus? It's when the miracle begins. When we get to the end of ourself. And when we get to turning away from that. Because really, the essence of sin is really selfishness. Being self-focused, making the world all about yourself. And it's turning, repentance means I turn away from that. I turn away from a life that's self, self, self to a life that in greater and greater measure recognizes Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Have you ever heard someone tell their story, their, their God story, and you're waiting for God to show up in it? I know, I, I, when I was younger, that's how I would tell my God. I'd say, yeah, now that I'm a Christian, I, I don't do this anymore, and I don't do that, and I don't do this. And because, of, because I'm a Christian, I, 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 self, 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 self. I'm pretty good. Didn't really need changing, just needed God to put a rubber stamp me in. People are like, Wow. What a great young man. I'm sure they weren't thinking that, but that's what I thought they should be thinking. It wasn't a story about God at all. It was a story about self. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins or your selfish nature that dominates, your sins may be wiped out, and part of that is the power to overcome self. And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You know what? It is refreshing to live for the Lord. There's an incredible refreshment that comes into your life when you go, okay, um, I am at the end of myself. 
but that's not the end of the resources. I am at the end of what I can do, but there's something more, and that's what God can do, right? When we work, we work. This is Hudson Taylor. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. So when you get to the end of what your work can do, you're not the end. There's still what God can do. I'll jump down to verse 28. It says, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you. This is a hopeful thing to say to these Jewish audience. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. What's God's intention? Times of refreshing, sins wiped out, to bless you, to turn you from a path that's destructive and deadly and to turn you into a path of life. It says here that the priests and captains of the guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. Now, how did they get to say this message? Because of the miracle. In the Roman Empire, it was the miracle of changed lives. Miracles of people who ran with a totally different internal wiring. God had done a transformation of the heart, and it was showing up in their actions. Here in this story, it was what God had done through them, the healing of this man. I asked a British evangelist years ago. He was a young British evangelist. He traveled all over the world. He was telling me stories. He saw people get healed all over Africa and Europe and South America and all these different places. And I was like listening to story after story after story, and I said, Okay, got to stop you here. How come where I live, we don't see very many people get healed? What gives? And he said, well, let me show you some scriptures. And the scriptures he actually took me to, let's grab them for you here real quick. Yeah, scriptures he took me to Mark 16, 15 to 20. Mark 16, 15 to 20. And this is what he read. He said, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And it's a crazy list. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. And after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So he's, after he read that to me, he said, the reason why I believe we don't see as many healings in North America as we see wherever else we go is that Jesus said these signs would accompany his message. Or to put it in the terms we're using today, the miracles would follow the message. Or they'd at least accompany the message. Now, I know in the John story, the miracle happens first, and then, or with Peter and John, the miracle happens first, and then they share the message. And I think it can, only, it can happen that way. But if you're not planning to share the message, I think it diminishes the accompaniment of the miracles. It's one theory, and I think there's some scripture that sort of seems to, to lean that way. Um, lately, I've been hearing more and more healing stories more and more and more, actually. And who am I hearing it from? I'm hearing it from people who are taking the message out. 
I'm thinking people who are saying, I'm sharing, I'm being a witness. I'm sharing the gospel with this person and that person. I've gone out to share with numerous people. And when I do that, I pray for people. If they've got something wrong with their bodies, I pray for them. And, and I've seen people get healed. Like, okay. It seems like there's an accompaniment that these signs will go together. So the miracle and the message are not separated. And whether it's a miracle of a healing or a miracle of a transformed life, I think that they, they go together with the message. That's how God's designed it to be. It says that in verse uh, 4 of the next chapter, uh, that many of those who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. It was 3,000 previously. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to him, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, they're into the message again, aren't they? It's interesting if you go back to the previous message, there's certain points. They talk, like, the first crowd, the more favorable, friendly crowd, who were like, this guy's just been healed. It's amazing. They talked about the resurrection of Jesus. They talked about turning from sin towards God. They talked about the sins being forgiven. Um, they talked about God's refreshing. Um, they talked about God's blessing. That was all part of that first message. Now they're sharing a message again to a different crowd, these leaders who are not happy with them. And in this one, you find... Um, you find, it's a shorter version, but you find different things. But they really get down to the exclusivity of Jesus. It's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. That's a pretty straight message. Now here's this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. It's the miracle showing up again. It's the transformed lives that speak along with the message. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing was, there, was standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. How do you argue with a miracle? So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak any longer, to, to any, speak no longer to anyone in this name. Here's this, the insidious part of their plan. They know the miracle's undeniable. I think a lot of us would say, man, why do we have to mess around with the message? Let's just do a lot of miracles. If, wouldn't that be a better strategy? Why, why would, wouldn't it be great if just miracle after miracle was always happening, then everybody would be convinced? 
everybody would decide to follow Jesus. Well, no, these guys are not deciding to follow Jesus. The miracle is absolutely in their faces, and they are not deciding to follow Jesus. See, a miracle is not enough. Miracle is not enough. It's part. It's part of our witness. It's part of what we bring, but it's not enough. It has to come accompanied with a message. So you can see something incredible, and this has happened time and time again. You think about Jesus. He heals 10 lepers. One out of 10 comes back to thank him. Who knows what the other nine did? Just got on with life? I think that happens a lot. Christians may pray for someone else. They might see some miracle in their lives, and then they go, thank you. I'm good. It's important for them to know the message. It's important for them to know that, that they, need to be recon- they have a need to be reconciled with God. And God is available, so available, so willing to do that, to bring blessing and refreshing into their lives. But they, but they can't live in two worlds. They can't hang on to sin. They can't live for self and live for God at the same time. It's, they have to choose. The message has to come with, with the miracle. And these wily, the bad guys of the story, know that. Go ahead, keep doing miracles, but don't bring the message. They know that will actually stop the movement. Stop, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And here's how the story ends with a prayer. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And this is what David said. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Help us communicate the message. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. Lord, keep doing the miraculous. And after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken, and they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then we hear another description of this incredible community. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had, an internal miracle. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
want to tell you one last story, and then I'll come to my conclusion. Sometimes when I hear like a miracle story or a healing story, my inner skeptic sort of jumps to the front of my cerebellum or whatever is up there and, and says, yeah, but it, how do we know they really were sick with that? And how do we really know that they're really healed? And there could have been a lot of other explanations for that. I might be the only one. I don't know if anyone else has sort of that rationalizer in them that sort of discounts, like, say, yeah, maybe they were healed, but maybe not. I can think of another way it could have. So when my friend Nancy started posting on Facebook that she was healed, and I know Nancy. No, most of the healing stories are second and third hand. It's like, yeah, my, my cousin Jeb, he's got healed. I'm like, okay, might be true. Might be an exaggeration. But my friend Nancy Powers, I know really good. 20 years, known her for 20 years. In fact, I first came to this church under, she was my street invaders leader. I was her assistant leader. We brought a bunch of students to this place to do street invaders. Street invaders is an outreach program where people go and preach the gospel everywhere. And lately they've been reporting a lot of healing. So that's, you know, comes to mind. So in 1993, I came to this church for the first time, slept in one of these back rooms. I think uh, Darlene Buchanan and Linda Francis did our laundry, and uh, the Mockmers fed us, and, and we had a great time. Rob Chartrand was the youth pastor. It was great. But that was my first time with Nancy, getting to know Nancy. And then I, I, for four years, we worked together in northern Saskatchewan in the same church, her husband Keith and her, and we just worked in that church hand in glove. I spent more time in their house than any other house for four years, just really uh, got to know them in incredible ways. I know these people. So when someone I know, I know, I know, I know, I know says, I've been healed, I thought, this is my chance. I always wanted to be like a healing detective. <laughs> right? I wanted to dig deep and find out the story, end of the story, and see if it, you know. So I phoned Nancy. I said, um, you came to mind this week, and I, I want to hear your healing story. You've been putting on Facebook, you were healed. Tell me, tell me the deal. She says, okay, three years ago, she starts telling me the story. Three years ago, and sometimes her daughter got on the phone for this conversation. She said, three years ago, um, I was diagnosed with, you know, some stuff. And then eventually that diagnosis got changed. But I had no energy. I, I couldn't go to work. She was the, the school counselor in the small town of Eston, Saskatchewan, 1,000 people. She was, a school, she was the only school counselor in the, in the school. And that was her job. And she said, I couldn't go to work anymore. I didn't have enough energy to, to work. I loved my job, but I had to give it up. Eventually, I had to give it up permanently. First it was just six months, and then eventually I had to give it up permanently because this thing persisted for three years. And she goes, and uh, eventually the doctors changed my diagnosis and said, well, we think maybe you have fibromyalgia. And she was like, you know, sometimes she said, maybe they use that as a catch-all, but I had no energy, aches and pains. It was like I had the flu, and I had headaches and migraines, and I had all these things, and I had no energy. If I used my energy on one day, I would pay for it for four days. So she would save her energy for the, her girls. She had two girls in high school. She'd save it for the moments where they would have a hockey game or something like that. And she'd go and, and be there and be as energetic as she could be, but she knew that the rest of her week was done. She'd have nothing left to offer. So she couldn't work. Anyhow, her daughter, um, Mackenzie, and oh, actually Madison and Mackenzie, both of her daughters, they went on this program, Street Invaders. Again, I mentioned it, where people go out and, with the message of Jesus and share the gospel. And um, so the wind-up for that in 2015, the wind-up for Street Invaders happened to be right here in our church. I said, can we hold the wind-up in your building? Yeah, sure, come on, come back, tell your stories, tell about what Jesus did, it's really cool. So at that service, um, 
they had sort of a time where people could come share what God was doing in their lives. And one of our, uh, one of our young moms in the church, Leanne Falk. Leanne, are you here this morning? Yeah, Leanne's there. Okay. Leanne Falk, she got up, she came up to the front, and she talked about how they had struggled to have kids and, and talked about how they'd been prayed for a couple years before at this very same meeting, type of meeting, this sort of wind-up for street meters, and how after that they had kids. I'm giving the very short version of it. I'm sorry. I know it's more complex than that. Okay? But she just really encouraged people then to pray. I was prayed for here, and God's done a miracle in my life, and it's great, and you should pray for miracles and don't stop praying. Out in the audience was, um, was uh, Mackenzie, and Mackenzie was just about to go into grade 10. She's just out, she's, it's August, right? So she's just about to go into grade 10. And Mackenzie felt moved in that moment, I need to pray for my mom. Her mom happened to be out at the merchandise table in the foyer. So she went right out there and she grabbed her mom. Her mom was there sort of doing her one day that she'd pay for for four days. You know, being where my girls are, right? And she hauled her all the way up. I asked Nancy, exactly where? She said, one foot out, three feet over. <laughs> this is where it happened. She came right down to the front and the daughter prayed for the mom, put her hands on her, and she said, I'm just being obedient to God. And Nancy was like, blessed. She's like, oh, I've taught my kids to be obedient to God. This is so good. But Nancy had been prayed for tons of times, tons of times. Every time someone would pray for her, Nancy would sort of feel this sense of guilt, like Nancy has a strong faith, right? She said, it's more important that God loves me than he heals me. That's way more important. And God can heal me. I believe that. But if he doesn't heal me, no big deal. It's way more important that God loves me. So Nancy has a strong faith. People would pray for her, but she'd always feel bad for them because she wouldn't get healed. And then she'd go, oh, is that going to hurt their faith? My faith is strong. I totally know who my God is. I'm cool. But I feel for them. And so here's her daughter who feels like she needs to be obedient to God to pray for her mom. And she's like, oh, it's so sweet and it's wonderful. I'm glad she's being obedient. And oh, I hope she isn't too disappointed. She prays for her. That night they spend a night in the hotel here in, in Moose Jaw. Wakes up in the morning. Mackenzie says to Nancy, are you better? She's like, well, actually, I'm not experiencing the usual pain I usually experience, and I feel like I've got some energy, and, oh, okay, that's great. They go back to Eston. Two weeks later, she confides in her husband, I think I might be healed. <laughs> He's like, really? He's like, yeah, no, but I know these things can sort of regress, like it can sort of come and go, so I don't want to be, like, proclaiming this. A couple months later, it's changed. She's proclaiming it. It's on Facebook. She goes to, okay, small town, no hospital, just a clinic. She goes to the nurse practitioner at the clinic who's walked her through her symptoms for three years. She sits down with her and she goes, all my symptoms are gone. Her nurse practitioner bursts into tears and just cries on the spot. It's like, I think I'm healed. So I phoned Nancy. I said, well, okay, Nancy, stop the story. I'm a bit of an inner cynic, and I think you are too, because I know you. If someone had come to you with this story, would you be like, well, did you check with the doctor? Did you, you know, the whole things? She's like, yeah, I'm the same way. I often hear stories of healing, and I sort of think, yeah, maybe that didn't happen. She goes, but this is in my life now, and I can't deny it. So Nancy's, all the symptoms are gone She's starting to go on Facebook. Uh, uh, people, I know it's weird, but I don't have fibromyalgia anymore. Everyone in the town of a thousand knows Nancy as the woman who used to be our school counselor, but then got fibromyalgia and couldn't get out of bed anymore. 
she eventually had so much energy, she said, I better get a job or I'm going to go crazy just staying at home. So she couldn't get her old job back, so she went and worked at the hardware store, the only hardware store, right? She went to the hardware store, and she's working, and people come in, and they go, Nancy, are you okay? I'm great. Really? You don't have any of your symptoms? No, none. He's like, what happened? I went to this youth thing, and my daughter prayed for me, and now I'm all better. They're like, seriously? So it's been over a year. It's been over a year. I got, Ke- I got uh, Mackenzie on the phone, and I said, uh, what has this done for you? What has this done for you? Uh, she said, uh, I got my mom back. I have my mom, my mom back. So what else has it done for you? She goes, when I get discouraged, I think about how good God is to us and how much he loves us. I said, do you think it has anything to do with going out and proclaiming who Jesus is? Yeah, I think it might. Last Friday night, how did I get on this whole story? Last Friday night, I was discouraged. Do you have been flow every week? Some of you are probably rock solid. Me, I have my moments. I had one of those moments. I was praying. I was actually asking the Lord. I felt like, man, I feel like, you know, the enemy's coming in hard. I want to fight back. But, you know, uh, normally I'm looking for Scripture to fight back with because that's what Jesus did with the devil. So I'm always thinking, you know what, God, just give me something. I, I'm going to go, I can read the Bible and stuff. I, you give me something, I'm just sort of asking. And immediately the thought of Nancy Powers came into my mind. And I thought, Nancy Powers got healed. Of course, I need to investigate that because I'm a skeptic, but I'm going to investigate that. And then I started saying, God, if Nancy Powers got healed, man, you can do anything. And just, it changed, it changed. Dark clouds, sunshine. God, you can do anything. So let me give give you my takeaway for today. Four things. One, you want to be a witness? You want to be a witness? You want to be empowered? You want to impact people for Christ? Here, here's four things. First, allow God to work a miracle in you. Allow God to work a miracle in you. I mean, this is probably one of the reasons, one of the good supporting reasons for why we do a set-free retreat twice a year. We just say, we need a time where, a concentrated time where we can really focus on allowing God to do the work in us, right? I mean, God wants to change people in our community, but he wants to change people right here in our church. He wants to change me. He wants to change you. He wants to do a deep work. Are the things that you say, man, self has not been very effective in changing this. Well, let's give Jesus a try. Allow God to do a miracle in you. Let him expose some stuff in your life. Let him show you the next thing he wants to work on. He's gracious. He will not show you everything you need to work on. That would put you in the dumps. But he will, if he shows you an area that needs to be worked on, that means he's going to provide the resources for you to get through that. Because he's gracious that way. Because he works in wonderful ways that way. He'll, he'll walk you through. To allow God to work a miracle in you. Second, pray for God to work a miracle in others. You know, we heard about Bree's cancer. We could have said, yeah, that's just, God doesn't really do that. Sore shoulders, maybe. Stubbed toes. Yeah, we'll pray for that. But God doesn't really, 
touch cancer on the eye. I mean, being facetious, obviously. Pray for God to work in a miracle in others. You have not because you ask not. So we need to pray. We need to pray for healing. You say, I haven't seen a lot of healing in, in, in my lifetime. That's okay. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. I don't know why he doesn't heal everybody. I believe that he doesn't heal everybody. Just throwing that out there for some of you might think differently. But I, that's what I believe, that he doesn't heal everybody. And I don't know why. I don't know why. It's one of those things that sort of puts him back in the God position when I'd rather have him in the more controllable and he's God, and I'm not, and, but he does work miracles, and he does heal today. So pray for God to work a miracle in others, and whether that's a miracle of healing, whether that's a miracle of changed circumstances in their lives, whether that's a healing internally, where there's something that is always tripping them up, but God wants to set them free from that. Number three, pray for boldness to continually give credit to Jesus. Pray for boldness to continually give credit to Jesus, not self. The world around us doesn't mind if we do nice things, doesn't mind if we show compassion, doesn't mind if we do social justice. Probably will applaud most of that. Where it gets tricky is they don't want it done in Jesus' name. Politely, but firmly, refuse. The world will encourage you, do it to your own glory. Do it so that self gets the praise. Just refuse. Pray for boldness to continually give the credit to Jesus. Continually give the credit to Jesus. And finally, let them know that he can work a miracle in them too. So when you're sharing your story, God's been doing this in my life or he did this in my life, whether that's like crazy miracle like Nancy experienced, cool miracle over time with like Brie experienced, or maybe, or maybe it's just that God is doing a work inside you that you can't explain just because of, it can't be explained by your own self. It's really God. When you're telling them about this incredible miracle that God is doing, of what God is doing in your life, then let people know that God wants to bring refreshing into their life. God wants to bless them. God has good things in store for them. They have to make a choice, obviously. They can reject that, or they can receive that into their lives, and it can change the whole game. Let's stand.